So you know anyone who's just really fit? You know that person that like, before you are, you are really, you know somebody or you are, Cindy? Are you that person? Your brother. You're not that person. That person at work every day, it's like you get to work and you're exhausted already and like they said, well, I ran 10 miles before work, right? When there are donuts in the break room, they go past those and head for the carrots, right? And, and it's like, it's intimidating, you know, but, but they're fit, right? Are you that person? Anybody here that person? Or anyone want to point fingers and say, I know who that person is? So, so we'll be uh, audience interaction today. So what are the benefits of being fit? Just yell it out. Good health. Good health. All right. More energy. More energy. Strength. Strength. You feel good. You probably sleep better. It clears up your mind so you're focused on things. When you're in good health, you know, other things seem to click in place, right? I worked for um, several years at Kaiser Permanente overseeing their community relations work and their, their charity work. And, and if you've seen their commercial, you've probably seen all that, this wonderful woman's voice, Thrive. You know, it sounds so wonderful. You know, and, and it's all about you have a healthy workplace. Really, you want to do it individually. But when you, when you have a, a health plan, and, and when I worked there, we were the, the largest health plan, the hardest, largest group in our plan. You know, by between six and 7,000 employees made up the group that we all participated in as employers, employees of Kaiser. And the culture there is about health. And so thriving is about um, being in good um, physical shape. Uh, the work I did in my department was around uh, a lot of donations and charity work related to what we call heal work, healthy eating, active living. Because of the things we need to keep our bodies in good shape and keep our minds active. And, and so the culture there was interesting. For instance, in our little snack area with machines, you know, they, they didn't have like real sugar pop. It was just diet, which has its own problems, but they didn't go down that path. And then uh, they had tended to have healthier snacks you could buy, you know, or, or we, uh, a very standing uh, thing that happened in, the, in our meetings is, is we would have walking meetings which was really cool. So either when I would meet with my boss or the staff that I supervised, we'd have one-on-one meetings. We'd often go for a walk while we met, right? And we'd, we'd walk to this park that was nearby where our office was. And during that walk, we'd have our meeting. It was great because we were doing something. And, and another thing culturally it was allowed and encouraged was um, if you were in a meeting with anybody from the president to somebody else, and uh, if you just felt like getting up from your chair and moving around, you could do that. That's just what you did. You, you moved around. You go stand by the wall instead because standing is healthier than sitting, Right? And so that was the, the culture that was there. What was fascinating and, uh, is that when you look at a, a health plan and when the insurance person comes to sell your group a policy or, or renew for the coming year, they always look at how much usage you had the year before. Right? And so that can affect your rates. Um, and so if your group was really healthy, that can help your rates go down. If your group is not healthy, the rates go up. And so as an employer, you want a healthy workforce. You want people who are fit and active. The fascinating thing about working at Kaiser is that although we were the largest group, like I said, six or 7,000 people were on that health plan, we were also the most unhealthy group by data. And you stop and go, well, why is that? That doesn't make any sense. We all knew what was right and what we should do and how we should uh, exert energy and how we should live to be healthy, but, but we were the least healthy group. And, and that's this strange thing. What We know one thing, but we don't follow it. And that plays out in my own life. I mean, when I got married almost 34 years ago, I was exactly the same height I am today. I weighed 135 pounds, fully dressed. Uh, today, and this will be an inside joke for people that are health professionals, you know, when I, when I get my BMI done, my body mass index, it says I'm too short for my weight. 
<laughs> BMI says I'm too short. Um, <laughs> like that one, Fernando? <laughs> You're probably really fit, though. You just look it. All right, so... Uh, so I go to the doctor, and, you know, now it's like it's 135, it's 180-ish. Um, you know, my waist went from 31 to 34. I'm getting, this is deep, transparent stuff here, right? Uh, I'm not going to talk about this. Uh, it changes. I, I absolutely believe all the stuff that we taught and, and, and tried to do at Kaiser are right. And, and when I go to the doctor, and I'm due for a physical this year, you know, he's going to say, I'm going to go to Dr. Lee, and he's going to say, Dale, you know, things are pretty good, but, you know, your cholesterol is pretty high. And it is. It has been since I was about 16 years old, mostly genetic. My grandfather had sky-high cholesterol. My dad did. I do. And it's probably not dangerous, but it's, it's, you have to watch out. You know? and, and he's going to say, you should exercise more. Yep, I should. I laid in bed last night thinking about this sermon saying, I'm, I'm going to do the New Year's resolution. Thing. I'm going to start getting up before work and go exercise. I, yeah, that would be, I would feel so good. Oh, it's five. Yeah, I'm really tired. I'm going to go back to sleep. Because we go through that. We know what we should do. I absolutely believe all those things are true. And yet, I hear the same things from the doctor every year. You need to exercise more. The title of today's sermon is uh, The World's Fittest Person. And, and Bill and I interacted before the service, and he thought I should have just named the sermon Bill. No? You will have all understood if I named the sermon Bill. So The World's Fittest Person. And we're going to look at a passage in the book of Mark, uh, and you'll get a glimpse of what, what we're talking about here and how this law came and heard them debating. And I'm going to stop right there. Uh, because just in case, uh, if you haven't been here over the last while, I need to make sure everybody's on the same page for this message today, which here in the book. And basically what's happened is we have various religious leaders and community leaders coming to Jesus, and they're very opposed to what he's been trying to trap him. And it's really that, that passage, that part started uh, as we looked at a few things a few weeks ago where Jesus had gone to the temple and it's the, the, the cleaning or reforming of the temple scene we've seen where Jesus comes and throws over the money changers tables and, and releases all the animals that are being sold and, and says to the people there, you've taken what's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations and turned it into a den of thieves. And we discovered that when he calls it a den of thieves, it's not that they were doing criminal things there, it's just the den of theme is where criminals come to hide out after doing crime. Right? So he's basically accusing them of, you go out and live your life however you want, doing whatever you want outside of what God's desires are for you, but when you come here, you say, this is the temple of the Lord, we're safe, we're in our hideout. And so he, he turns over all the tables, and basically doing an object lesson that says, that old system is no longer relevant. Now forgiveness comes through me. Now being restored to community comes through me. And, and following that interaction with the, the temple and all the people there, some of the leaders came and says, well, who said you could say that? Who gave the, you the right? Who gives you authority to talk this way? And he kind of set them up and said, I'll answer your question by whose authority I can do this if you'll answer me one question. And, but they wouldn't answer the question. And so they just moved on. And they were trying to trap them, but they couldn't. And, and we saw a couple weeks ago an interaction where a couple of groups within the, the Jewish community that on a day-to-day life would have really been kind of enemies, the, the Pharisees, who were devout followers of the things of God, who sincerely wanted to see what it meant to follow God's rule and follow the law. And they had developed a very intricate system of what that looks like. They came, but then also came the Herodians, who were, who were, who were uh, Jewish people who believed that you needed to, to keep your place in society safe by, by being supportive of the government. And so they were in favor of Herod and the Roman government, 
And so these two groups came together and they asked Jesus the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Just figuring out that the group here, the Pharisees, would say, no, you should never pay that. We're God's people, not Caesar's people. And this group would say, well, of course you should pay the tax because that's how you stay in good stead with the government. So they asked Jesus, knowing whichever way he answered was going to make somebody mad and they could get him through political means. But he turned the tables on them again and said, asked for a coin and they gave him a coin. says, whose, whose image is on the coin? It's an image of Caesar. And says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He, he's put his image on something. Give to him what bears his image. If you benefit at all from this community, this society, from the, the roads, from the security, from the water system, then, then pay your tax. That's, that's his little God. Give it back to him. But he was implying then, but everything you have belongs to God. Why? Because you are made in his image. So give to God what bears his image. And that's you. They didn't like that answer. And so they're still finding other ways to trap him. And then, and then last week we had this interaction that was a pretty complex situation where this other group of religious leaders called the Sadducees came to try to trap him. And they were going to trap him and test him theologically. See, this, this group did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe that there was a, a life to come. Uh, so it says they didn't believe in the resurrection. And, and we know that they only believed in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the authoritative word of God. And so they came with this scenario to trap Jesus where they used this, uh, this part of the law that allowed for this, that if a man is married to a woman and they didn't have any children and the man died, his brother is supposed to marry the widow to try to have children. And if they have children, then that keeps the inheritance and keeps the family line going. It all keeps it all in the family, right? And, and so that was an allowable thing. They played out this absurd situation that this happens seven times. Each brother dies before there's a child with this same widow. And they say, in the resurrection, because Jesus already taught about the resurrection some, in the resurrection, which we don't believe there is, whose wife basically to look at them and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You're asking the wrong questions. You either don't believe scripture or you don't believe the power of God. Active is only this big about the life here and now. And what is to come through the power of God and the promise of God is something beyond your imagination. So he was basically turning the tables on them, saying the resurrection is absolutely central to everything we believe, not something to be discarded. And so we have this passage today. It says, one of the team and heard them debating. So he either heard this last interaction or he could have heard some of the other ones. And he noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. To enter into that world and, and then come back and see the implications for us. We have to understand a couple things. 
One is, is when this man comes to Jesus and says, of all the commandments, which one is the greatest? Which one is most important? He, he is not asking for Jesus to rank the 613 commandments and laws that, that the Jewish faith followed. Right? He's not saying, look at all these and can you rank them from top to bottom? Can you look at all 613 laws, some which are framed in things you should do and some in things you shouldn't do, positive and negative, and, and give us that ranking? What is number one at the top of the list? He, he's not asking that. And to me, that, that gives me a sigh of relief because, as I've explained before, my personality, I'm a, uh, in the Myers-Briggs scale, I'm an introvert, and, 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 and the way I intuitively look at things, I hate absolute questions. Like, what is your favorite food? My favorite. There's only one favorite. How would I ever, through process of elimination and competition between individual foods, get to the place where I say, this is my favorite I mean, I love Mexican food. I love green chili. Oh, I also love chili rellenos. Well, so my favorite might be a green chili smothered chili relleno. But I also love Japanese food. Do I like green chili smothered chili rellenos better than I like sushi? Mm, I don't know. And then there's Thai curry. And is it green curry or Penang curry or yellow curry? Or, oh, I don't know. I, I cannot get to this place of favorite. Or you said, what's your favorite thing to do? Like today? And so when it says, what is the greatest commandment? What is most important? It isn't like I'm going to sort through the 613 and here is my answer. Instead, this was a common debate concept among rabbis and teachers of the law, which was really a question of not as number one in rank, but what is the foundational, what is the fundamental premise of the law? And those are the things they would debate. And so Jesus' answer makes total sense in that context. The, the fundamental, most basic premise of the law is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus was quoting a passage from Deuteronomy that is known as the Shema. And Shema is a Hebrew word that means hear or listen. Hear, O Israel. And so this was actually a prayer that, that every faithful Jewish person would have known and recited every morning when they get up and every evening before they lie down. This was the Shema. It was something they knew and they loved and they valued and they cherished the Shema. This was God's word to them. And if we think about when the Shema was given, and we think about how this was given to God's chosen people, and you think about their history, they had been freed from captivity in Egypt, right? And, and established as God's people. And their history, though, was seen and followed this cycle and this up and down freedom in times of disobedience, mostly found themselves living in places surrounded by societies that worshipped many other gods, this was a, the Shema was a, 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 it summarized who God's people is, it are in the midst of polytheist. And so if you're in that situation where you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you're, you're living in captivity, you're not free to follow God in the ways you always wanted to. If you wake up every morning and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord's whirling around us. All the other gods and religions that are vying for our attention. Imagine if we woke up every day and went, uh, went to bed every day with that same mindset. Listen, Stapleton Fellowship Church, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Imagine if you thought about that every day. When I get up and I'm going to go about my day, I'm going to remember the Lord my God, the Lord is one. 
He is the only one in the midst of the multi-God society that we live in. And sometimes that society reflects in in various religious viewpoints that pull us different ways, but in reality, our our life day-to-day is threatened by other types of gods that we are threatened to worship, that are threatened to pull us their way, to vie for our attention. And that could be things like the idol or the god of status or of our job. It might be the idol that I have of this really cool car I bought. It could be uh, the job I wish I had. It could be an idol that's even kind of obscure, like I I hold my family in such high esteem and I worship my family because we're not like the ones next door because they're a mess. That that can become an idol. That can become something we worship that, that pulls our attention away from the Lord our God is one. Where's our attention? Where's our desire? Where is our passion? What's it directed toward? And so the Shema reminds us that there is only one God. And when we quote it, we, we start out each day with that hope and that promise. The Shema that Jesus quotes is also hugely important. Once again, this is something that this teacher would have known. He, and that's why he affirmed it. This is a great answer. Yeah, this is foundational. This is the most important thing. The Shema reminds us of only one God, and it also emphasizes that love for God should consume our entire existence. And our entire existence, that, that is a big term. Everything about us. The challenge is words like this, and this is so brilliantly written. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That just, that just flows off the lips, really, really easily. In fact, several years ago, there was a worship song. That, that, that was, those are the words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I mean, that'll get stuck in your head. And it's really easy to say. But sometimes things flip off of our lips so easily that we really don't grasp the depth of them. And so when we look at the Shema, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We really need to ask ourselves the questions. When, when the people in that first century context, and when it was first given in Deuteronomy, the, the, the Shema, when those words first came, what, what did those people hear when they heard those words? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. What did they hear when they heard, love the Lord your God with all your heart? Because when we hear the word heart, uh, we can go to biology, we we. The heart is the blood pumper. That's what sends life-giving blood throughout our body and that cleanses it. And it's this amazing process, right? That's our heart. Or we might go more subjective or or, uh, metaphorical and the the heart is the seat of emotions. The heart is the source of love. I mean, we have Valentine's Day. It's hearts, right? We have Cupid shooting an arrow through the heart. But but that wasn't the view of, of the people then. They didn't see heart as the source of love or the source of emotions. Those emotions, those things, love came from another word, a Greek word called splonkna, which means bowels or guts. That, that doesn't look good on a Valentine card. <laughs> Laura, I love you with my bowels. <laughs> Points. They understood heart as the command center of the body, the the central control center of your whole being. This is where decisions are made and plans are hatched. It's a center of our being that controls our feelings and our emotions and our desires and our passions. It's where commitment takes place. It's It's where our Lord with all your heart. And then it's love the Lord with all your soul. And that's a word we don't use a lot just in day to day interactions. 
uh, the, the God breathes breath into a soul. That's what gives life. But, but soul in this context is in power that brings strength to our will. It's, it's our volition. It's, it's where we put into action what the control center, the heart, wants to do. It's the, the doing part of life. It's where we say, this is, this is good, I'm going to do that. I'm going to jump into that. It's the, the, the will being put into place. It's vitality and intensity of life. It's how we do things. And we're also called to love the Lord our God with all our mind. And when I hear this, I can't help but hear the Apostle Paul writing the book of Romans chapter 12, where he says, don't be conformed any longer uh, to the things of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. The mind is the place of perception and reflection. It it directs our uh, our judgment. It it helps us evaluate things, to look at things that have happened in the past and, and seek not just to know how or what, but why. And to wrestle through that, it's a a call to expand our understanding, to know more and more about the things of God and to look at our experiences and look at who God is and and evaluate that and go, what does that mean in my life? And to explore really hard questions. It means in our lives we should read things that stretch us and challenge us instead of what we tend to do, which is default default to maybe devotional kind of things that just reaffirm what I already think as opposed to saying, no, I want to wrestle through the hard things, and this is something that happens throughout life. It's getting away from um, cliche Christianity or, or pat answers about things. It's saying, how do, we, how do we dive into this and wrestle through it? That's partly how we love the Lord our God with all our mind. And then we love our Lord our God with all our strength. And that's... Partly our body, it's, it's physical. Once again, in the Romans chapter 12, about we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Yeah, that, that's an amazing thing. Our bodies, but really we're talking about strengths, meaning all of our capacities. Everything about us. Our, our physical life, our, our, our body, our muscles, but also our giftedness and our, our talents and our skills and our, our passions and what we have, our, our resources, those are, those are all our capacities. And that's a, that's a big picture. Love the Lord God with, with all your capacities. So we really look at this and say, you love the Lord your God with, with the very center and control center of your being, and through the vitality of your soul, through uh, your, your vitality, your will, your, your activity, you love God, and, and through the expanding of your understanding, your, your ability to perceive the past and look towards the future, and you do that with everything you have. We are called to give and love God with everything we have and everything we are. That is a, that is a huge picture of a very quick little statement. What's fascinating is that Jesus added to the Shema from Deuteronomy this little short passage from Leviticus. It says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's a fascinating thing that goes on in the passage between singular and plural. The most important one are these two. He he has put them together into one thing. This is the Shema plus what Jesus added. And there's a a great book I would recommend to all of you by a, a biblical scholar named Scott McKnight. And he wrote a book about 12, 13 years ago called The Jesus Creed 
which basically takes this passage and its, its parallel passage in Luke and combines it into this book about the Shema. In other words, the Shema plus love your neighbor as yourself is now Jesus' statement on what should empower and enlift and drive and identify all those who follow Jesus. To, to get it and read it, it's awesome. The Jesus Creed. And so the Jesus Creed, the Shema plus love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus adds that to the equation. Why? Because you cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love our neighbor as ourself and love other people according to the highest ideals of who people are. Not according to we want to be loved. And I want people to love me for, for who I am and who I'm striving to be in spite of how I've messed up. Because that's how God loves me. And I want other people to love me that way, but do we turn it around and, and not love other people in life because they haven't earned something or they, they fell short? Jesus says the only way you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it, it takes place in other relationships. And you can't ignore that. They have to go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. What's interesting is in Luke's version of this story, it, it, it then follows into the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus looks at this man and says, you've answered well, right? And, and the man affirmed, you're right in saying God is one and there's no but him, but to love him with all your heart, with your understanding, with your strength, to love your neighbors yourself. That's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus looked at him and says, you're, you're, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That, that's, a, that's a good answer. And we ask ourselves the question, when Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom, what, what does he mean by that? What has he seen? What has he heard? How is he close? I think when he's looking at this man saying you're not far from the kingdom of God, is he saying you understand to a degree all the right stuff. You have identified that the foundation of it all is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And you're even identifying something amazing about that's more important than the temple sacrifices, which makes us see that picture again of Jesus overturning the tables. That isn't the way it works anymore. And something this man said showed he got something. But, but Jesus looking at him saying, you have the head knowledge. What's it going to take you to move from approval and affirmation of this teaching to submitting and stepping into following me on the way. It's kind of like Dale understanding and knowing that the best way to live physically is to be fit and eat well and exercise and do all those good things for a healthy body. When are you going to move from acknowledging that that is true and go exercise? It's the same statement. It's not enough just to approve and affirm what Jesus said as true. Now you've got to step into it. In other words, the Shema, basically the exercises of the Shema or the exercises of the Jesus Creed allow no part of our being to remain flabby or unattended. It all works together and say, this is how life works. This is the best scenario that God has painted for us. This is what a fit person looks like. They love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love neighbor as yourself, and those are absolutely connected, and you can't separate them out into pieces. I'm working on my mind this week. You know that they're all together. And the amazing thing is that this exercise is not just left up to us and say, good luck with that. The exercise of the Shema, the reminders every day to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
in the middle of my day with things competing for my attention and my affection and pulling me away from the things of God, I'm reminded that he is one and I am going to love the God who loved me as a whole person. I'm going to love him with everything I have and everything I am. And in that, God works to help us love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. I say, imagine every day starting out with that mindset as opposed to laying in bed at night going, yep, tomorrow I'm going to start exercising. If I actually get up and go, that's a whole different deal. If I lay in bed and think, yeah, I should really step more faithfully and positively into the things of God. If we pray that in the morning, God walks with us and nurtures us and through the power of his Holy Spirit helps us better love him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. The Jesus Creed is really a prayer. And Bill's going to come up at the end and give a couple announcements, but the way I want to end our service is to start praying today that way, and I want us to stand. Stand to God with all my heart, right? Love my neighbor as myself. I'll do the first part and then have you join me a couple times in this prayer. Let this be our prayer. Hear Stapleton fellow neighbor as myself. Can you say it with me? Love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself. One more time. I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself.